Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. And welcome to TGI Crime Day. Today's episode is going to be part two, the final part of the Great British Train Robbery. Every time I say that, I want to say the Great British Bake Off. Is that what that show's called? Anyways, we're not talking bakeries, we're talking train robberies today. So if you have not watched or listened to part one, go do that or you will be totally lost because we're going to jump right in. I will have part one linked in the episode notes so you can easily find it before you watch this one. And then just to give you like a little refresher to where we left off in part one, our gang of robbers pulled off their huge train heist, getting away with over 2.5 million pounds. However, the police were quickly on their tails and while the gang had planned to lay low at Leatherslade Farm for a few days, that plan was quickly squashed. They fled the scene, going their separate ways, assuming that the person in charge of cleaning up the crime scene and burning the farm to the ground would take care of any evidence left behind. Again, however, that particular associate took his portion of the money and, as they say, did a runner, leaving that big, fat, juicy crime scene ripe and ready for the picking. The police showed up to investigate, and our robbers are now stuck in hot water. Let's continue. The thing about Leatherslade Farm is that while it was in the middle of nowhere and seemingly hidden away with only one road to get in, when you go into a small town, you deal with a lot of looky-loos. Everyone is in everyone else's business, so if there is anything strange or there are newcomers or someone is acting oddly, they're going to notice. And that is exactly what happened. A sheep herder from a nearby farm called in a tip after seeing some activity happening at the farm. When the police arrived, the robbers were gone, but they had left behind the army truck, the Land Rovers, their sleeping bags, tons of food, some post office bags that contained the money, huge clues, lots of evidence. The police began dusting for fingerprints and found plenty of them because, again, someone was supposed to go and clean everything up, but they didn't. There were fingerprints found in the bathroom, on food bottles, and on the infamous Monopoly board that they used while playing Monopoly with real money that they had stolen from the train. Again, it's so punk rock. I'm not encouraging crime, but that is a very cool thing. A train robbery task force was formed with Detective Chief Superintendent Tommy Butler taking the lead. Tommy Butler is a fascinating person. I think he has a book I would love to read. Uh, If I find it, I will recommend it to you guys. Um, But Tommy Butler was the chief of the Flying Squad and had a reputation as a cunning old fox. One of the other Flying Squad members, John O'Connor, said, quote, He'd give the impression he knew all about you. Maybe he didn't, but he'd give the impression that he did, end quote. And then one of the robbers, Gordon Goody, said about Tommy Butler, quote, Tom Butler had a reputation, and he was a villain. He was so streetwise, he thought like a thief. He thought like I did, end quote. I think that that's such an interesting thing to note, this kind of really brilliant, really well thought out personality that one of them decided to go for the life of crime, the other decided to use their powers for good, And it's just kind of a cool thing to see them kind of see each other almost as equals, but knowing that one of them is like on the right side of the law. So interesting. So Chief Butler was the perfect person to take on this job because he thought like a thief. With the nickname One Day Tommy, because of how quickly he could get crimes solved, the task force was confident that they would be able to quickly track down the robbers. However, there was one little thing that didn't go exactly right. Even though Tommy Butler was strongly against it, photos of these suspected robbers were published in the paper. Butler was against it because this would give the robbers a heads up that they were onto them, 
and they would know to run, and most of them did run. The first robber to get caught was Roger Cordry, and Roger was hiding out with his friend Bill Bull. Bill and Roger were renting a flat above a florist shop, and they paid three months up front in cash, and the person who they rented from recognized Roger from the papers, and she thought that this sum of money was pretty odd for them to have in cash, so she called the police. Apparently, Bill Bull owed Roger some money, so he was helping Roger lie low, if I understand correctly. Roger was arrested six days after the robbery, and his friend Bill was arrested as an accomplice. Apparently, there was a man in prison who had been arrested close to the train robbery, and he told the detectives that he was willing to be an informant. He didn't have everyone's exact names, but there was another informant that was willing to fill in the gaps. The police used the names they had been given to match up the fingerprints they collected at the farm, and this has been a big point of contention because a lot of the robbers feel that while, yes, they were guilty of this crime, they genuinely don't think that their fingerprints were left behind, and they think that maybe the fingerprints were planted there afterwards. I don't know how I feel about that because there were a few people who were never identified that got away because their fingerprints weren't found at the farm, so if you were going to set up this elaborate scheme to find these guys, wouldn't you catch all of them? Or maybe that would look too suspicious. I don't know. How deep does it go? And then as far as matching the fingerprints, I'm assuming they were able to use fingerprints they already had from past arrests of these robbers because all of them had records. So once the police had the names, it was probably very easy to track down their past fingerprints for comparison. More arrests followed in the next few months, and by December of 1963, eight of the robbers and a couple of their accomplices were arrested. That was Charlie Wilson, Ronnie Biggs, Jimmy Husey, Tommy Wisby, Brian Field, Gordon Goody, Bob Welch, John Daly, and Roy James. One of the men who helped buy Leatherslade Farm was also arrested. His name is Leonard Field, and he was not related to Brian Field. So confusing, so many names. Um, Brian's boss at the firm, John Denby Weeder, was also arrested as an accomplice. Buster Edwards and Bruce Reynolds had both taken their families and ran away to Mexico. Jimmy White had already been on the run for 10 years when he committed this crime, so he just kept evading police, which he was clearly very good at. And then, of course, there were a few people involved who were only known by their aliases and have never been actually identified, so obviously they were never caught, at least not for this crime. I wonder if there's someone who was behind bars who was part of the Great Train robbery but had been arrested for something else. It drives me crazy, and we'll never know. The trial for the first round of arrests began on January 20th, 1964, and lasted for 51 days. There were 240 witnesses called, and crowds would stand outside the courthouse, waiting for the robbers to show up to court each day. Again, these guys became folk heroes. They became rock stars in this city, and people wanted to see them. They wanted to see what their wives were wearing to court. It was highly publicized and kind of like the crime of the century, so everyone wanted to be involved. Everyone wanted to know everything going on. I can't blame them. Something that has been pointed out in different articles and documentaries is the fact that most of the robbers were paying for very good, very expensive lawyers. This raised some eyebrows because they all pled not guilty. And they tried to claim that there had been evidence tampering and that their fingerprints had been planted, etc. Yet, many of them paid for these lawyers with cash and then later went on to write books and be interviewed in documentaries talking about how they were part of the robbery. So, it's odd to say the least that they were paying for these really expensive lawyers when they allegedly had no money to their names. There was a wild turn of events when one of the robbers was actually acquitted. Bruce's brother-in-law, John Daly, was acquitted when his lawyer made the argument that they couldn't prove that John was there because the fingerprints they found of his were only found on the Monopoly board, which belonged to him. So, of course, as defense lawyers do, his lawyers found him a nice little loophole to slip on through. 
His lawyer made the case that it would be reasonable to assume that his prints would be on the Monopoly board because it was his, and they couldn't prove that he was actually at the farm. Before his arrest, John went into hiding after his photo was put on the news and in papers in connection with the robbery. The prosecution argued that that was pretty suspicious, but his lawyers argued that he only did that because he was afraid of being caught and didn't want to be framed for something he didn't do. There wasn't actually enough evidence to convict him, and unfortunately, the judge agreed and John was acquitted. And of course, none of the other robbers involved could exactly say, hey, that's not fair, this guy was definitely there without admitting that they were also there, so John got to walk and no one could say anything about it. When it was all said and done, the trial ended and a verdict was given on April 15, 1964. Justice Edmund Davies was the judge in their case, and he was known for being a really tough judge, and he was determined to make sure a crime like the train robbery never happened again by making an example out of this gang. In court, Justice Edmund Davies told them, quote, Let us clear out the way of any romantic notions of daredevilry. This is nothing less than a sordid crime of violence inspired by vast greed, end quote. The sentence he handed down was the second longest in criminal history at that time. There was also no parole options at this point, and the sentence they got was almost double the usual penalty. Ronnie Biggs, Gordon Goody, Charlie Wilson, Tommy Wisby, Bob Welch, James Husey, and Roy James were given 30 years. Brian Field and Leonard Field were given 25 years. And that, a quick reminder, um, Leonard Field wasn't actually involved in the robbery. He was the one who purchased Leatherslade Farm and allegedly had no idea what their full plan was, but he still got that 25 years. They were both charged with 20 years of conspiracy to rob and then five years for obstructing justice. Brian's boss at the firm where Leonard was a client was given a three-year prison sentence for aiding and abetting. And then in an absolutely tragic and shocking turn of events, Bill Bowl was sentenced to 24 years, even though he had had nothing to do with the robbery. He hadn't been there. He didn't know what the plan was. He had simply been arrested with Roger, and the police found something around 140,000 pounds in Roger's car. Then Bill was roped in with the rest of them. So these men watched an innocent man get sentenced to 24 years and could have done something about it, but chose not to. And it's actually really unfortunate because later, a lot of them would talk about how bad they felt that Bill was wrongfully convicted. They said things like, this never should have happened. We all felt awful. But in court, they refused to say that he wasn't involved because, again, that would mean admitting their own guilt because they knew who was and who wasn't involved. It is weird, though, because Roger, who he was arrested with, was given a shorter sentence of 20 years because he was willing to give police information and he was the only one to confess his part in the robbery. So it seems like maybe he could have stood up for Bill and maybe he did, but the police didn't believe him. I'm not totally sure on that. But the bottom line is, Bill was sentenced to 24 years. And in his book, Bruce said, quote, Somewhere along the line, crime became more brutal and violent, and many of us blame, in no small way, the sentences that were handed out to the great train robbers in 1963. Thirty years per man for robbing a mail train is a disproportionate and draconian tariff for a crime that was committed without firearms. And it should have come as no surprise to the authorities that from that time forward, criminals took the view that they might as well carry guns, end quote. And I think Bruce was kind of saying that by doing that, it sort of opened this door for criminals to think, okay, well, then I'm not going to leave any witnesses. It's awful and people just shouldn't commit crimes, but here we are. And I know I'm so back and forth with this case because it's not black and white and it's okay if you, like me, are kind of on the fence with your opinions about certain points of this story. 30 years is a very long time, especially when you consider the fact that there were murderers who were given shorter sentences than these robbers. I think they absolutely should serve time for the robbery, but 30 years 
does seem very heavy-handed, in my opinion. I would like to know what other people think about that sentence. And I wanted to um, sum up Bill's part in this story before we move on. In January of 1964, Roger and Bill were both granted appeals. This was partly because of their ages. Bill was 50 years old at the time of his wrongful conviction, and Roger was the oldest robber. He was 42. The rest of the men were between 28 and 35. The judge overseeing the appeal, Justice Fenton Atkinson, said that Bill's age, temperament, and physique made him an unlikely train robber. And just a quick note, 40 to 50 years old, not old, okay? It's 2023. People live to be like 100. 40 and 50-year-olds are just getting started, okay? But according to census.org, in 1960, men could expect to live to age 66, on average, while women lived to age 73. So getting a prison sentence of 24 years as a 50-year-old man in the 60s was most likely a life sentence, especially for something that he didn't do. Bill's sentence was eventually reduced to 14 years, which is still absolutely ridiculous, considering the fact that he had nothing to do with anything. And unfortunately, Bill did spend his final years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He was diagnosed with cancer and died in 1970. Bill tried to fight his case for justice, but was treated horribly in prison. After his death, they found some letters in Bill's cell that were just heartbreaking. One of these letters said, quote, I knew not the slightest thing about this crime or what cordery was involved in until several hours after I went voluntarily to police headquarters at Bournemouth, where I was brutally beaten up and left unconscious, end quote. He called evidence presented against him during trial invented and went on to say, quote, all I ask is for a new trial, to have an honest trial with an honest judiciary, also honest witnesses, documents, and material, end quote. One of Bill's sons, David, remembered, quote, The first time we saw him in prison, he couldn't do up his trousers because his stomach was so swollen from the kicking he'd got from police. Dad always felt he was the innocent victim and fought back, often very loudly. He said there were many times he was beaten up in prison for not conforming because he was innocent, end quote. Decades later, Bruce's son, Nick, and Roger's son, Tony, both said that their dads had assured them many times that Bill had no part in the robbery. Tony Cordry vowed to help Bill's family get his name cleared in 2013, around the 50th anniversary of the robbery. In an interview, Tony said, quote, Dad said many, many times Bill had absolutely nothing to do with the robbery. It's only right I should try and help the family clear his name, end quote. Nick Reynolds also added, quote, I'll be providing a statement to Bill's family based on everything my father told me together with his handwritten account that Bill was wrongly convicted. I just hope it helps his family get proper justice, end quote. Bill's family suffered greatly because of his conviction. He left behind three kids, Anthony, Debbie, and David, and his wife, Renee. In 2013, Bill's kids were working to have Bill's case looked at by the Criminal Case Review Commission. That was about 10 years ago, and I haven't been able to find any updates since then, so I don't know if there has been any movement with Bill's case. Bill's son, David, who was 62 at the time of this quote, so he is now 72 years old, said, quote, The effect on our family was more than a burden. It was a catastrophe that virtually destroyed us. We carry the scars, some of them very open and very real, to this day, end quote. And like I said, this year, actually a few days ago, was the 60th anniversary. Bill's family has had to deal with losing their dad, with no one in the courts or law enforcement taking accountability for six decades. In his book, Bruce Reynolds said, quote, Every victory has a victim, sometimes more than one. In this case, it was Bill Bull. Bill Bull was an innocent man. The establishment sent him to prison, where he subsequently died, leaving behind a widow and children. Bill Bull was a victim of the judicial process. And while we, the great train robbers, accept responsibility for injuring Jack Mills, I've yet to hear anyone accepting responsibility for what was done to Bill Bull. End quote. It's just terrible, and I know some of you might be thinking, like, 
It's been 60 years. His kids are in their 60s and 70s now. Why does it matter? It matters. It absolutely freaking matters. I don't care if it happened yesterday or 100 years ago. Bill's memory and his reputation and his family's reputation should not be tied to this crime. He was an innocent man. His family deserves an apology at the very least, and he should absolutely be publicly acquitted. His wife, Renee, becoming a widow and a single mom in the 60s was most likely very, very difficult because don't forget, women couldn't even have their own bank accounts in England until 1975. This destroyed this family, and I would think that the reputation of having a father and husband who was convicted in the biggest robbery ever didn't help the way that they were treated and their futures as well. Going through something like this changes someone and it hurts for generations. So yes, I do think it's important for Bill's name to be completely cleared, even if it's only for his great-great-grandchildren. Even if there isn't an official statement, let's all just like send the good vibes and love to the Bull family wherever they are. Even if the officials won't say it, we all know that Bill Bull was an innocent man. And I think that's important. Of course, our story does not stop there. We still have a few of our robbers on the run. Eventually, the robbers were given reduced sentences. None of them served more than 13 years, but not long after their trial and sentencing of the original 25 to 30 years, a couple of the robbers made a break for it. They had each been placed at different prisons around the country because the police thought that if they were all together, they would plot a massive breakout, which let's be honest, they probably would have. Four months into their prison sentence, the first robber to escape was Charlie Wilson. Charlie Wilson was considered a major security risk and rumors that a plan to break him out was circulating in the big crime circles. So Charlie was eventually put in a maximum security cell where a guard would check on him every 15 minutes to make sure he was still there. It's quite a reputation. Charlie was serving his time at Winston Green Prison near Birmingham. Birmingham? Birmingham. Listen, <laughs> I can only do my best, all right? I'm American. This prison had walls and turrets surrounding it, so there was a bird's eye view of the entire thing, and the outside wall is about 20 feet high and a mile long. There was a section of this wall that was being updated, which turned out to be really helpful for Charlie. On August 12, 1964, three men used the ladders from that construction site to scale one of the side walls that was a little bit shorter than the outermost wall. Once they made it over the wall, they entered Charlie's secluded cell, knocked out the guard, and unlocked Charlie's cell. They gave him some clothes to change into, crossed back through the exercise yard, scaled back up over the wall, and jumped into a getaway car. Prison officials later said they believed there had been inside help because the masked men had used duplicates of prison keys that they would have needed to get access to various doors. So someone on the inside knew about this and was willing to help. Charlie Wilson had been known as the silent man because he said barely a dozen words during the trial and he refused to give any details during his police questioning. He claimed innocence, but his fingerprints were, of course, found at Leatherslade Farm. And then, of course, the stories came out that later confirmed his participation in the robbery. His escape led to a massive manhunt, roads were blocked off, and the airports and boat docks were all monitored. Original rumors were that he was lying low somewhere in London or that he had flown to France, but for four years, Charlie, going by the name Ronald Alloway, fled to Canada with his wife and kids. For a few years, his family lived in a French-speaking town near the Quebec and Ontario border. They were able to lay low until Charlie's wife, Pat, called her parents in England, which allowed Scotland Yard to track them down. I think maybe there was a wiretap on her parents' phone. That part is unclear, but either way, the police were able to track Charlie down in Canada on January 25th, 1968, and he was sent back to London where he served the remaining 10 years of his prison sentence. The other robber to escape prison was Ronnie Biggs. 15 months into his prison sentence, he planned an elaborate escape with a few of his fellow inmates. Ronnie was serving his sentence at Wandsworth Prison. 
Just outside the prison walls were bungalows where the guards and their families lived, and then beyond that was a train track. And a man who had recently been released, Paul Seaborn, planned the escape with two other ex-convicts and allegedly with support from Ronnie's wife, Charmaine. One day, a bunch of the prisoners and four guards were out in the exercise yard when a masked man appeared at the top of the wall. He dropped a homemade ladder into the yard, and Ronnie and three other inmates scaled the wall. The guards couldn't get to the wall quickly enough. One of them rang the alarm bell, and chaos broke loose. Ronnie and the other prisoners dropped down into the other side of the wall where Paul was waiting with an old moving van. They jumped in and made their escape. Like I mentioned, outside of the prison walls were where the guards and their families lived. And I guess one of the guards' wives saw this furniture van pull up. She didn't think anything of it. She thought someone was just moving in or moving out. Until suddenly, she saw these prisoners jump over the wall, jump in, and make their escape. So Ronnie met up with Charmaine and their children, and they fled. Ronnie had multiple plastic surgeries to change his appearance, and they ran off to Australia where they lived until 1969. When Ronnie got word that police were onto him again, he ran, and this time he left Charmaine and his kids behind. Dick move, in my opinion, after Charmaine put up with all this crap and helped, allegedly, to break him out of prison. Anyway, he was caught a few years later in Brazil, but when he was arrested, he was able to avoid extradition because he had had a child with a Brazilian woman. Basically, they caught him but couldn't do anything about it, so he just went on with his life bragging about the crime he had pulled off and used his notoriety to make money. It's... <laughs> Yikes. Apparently, he recorded a song with the Sex Pistols in 1978 called No One Is Innocent, and I guess this song was only on air for two weeks before the BBC banned it because it was not a great look having a song co-written and performed by a criminal on the run played on public radio that was paid for by taxpayers. Also, interesting fact from what I read, the Sex Pistols were not together for very long, and they only had a few, like, big hits, and two or three of them were banned from being played on the radio because they're just too punk rock, which is makes it the ultimate punk rock thing. Good job, Sex Pistols. Anyways, so these robbers, again, are outrageous, and it's hard not to be coerced into loving and admiring their stories, much to my own chagrin. So Ronnie spent many years kind of just living it up in Brazil until his health began to decline in the late 90s and he suffered several strokes. At that point, he announced that he was ready to return to London and he was arrested in 2001 and sent back to prison. However, his health continued to get worse and he was released in 2009. As I mentioned earlier, Bruce Reynolds, Buster Edwards, and Jimmy White all fled before they could be arrested with the rest of the gang. Jimmy White clearly knew how to keep his head down and blend in with his surroundings. As we know, he had already been on the run for 10 years with his wife and son when he took part in the Great Train Robbery. Author Pierce Paul Reed described Jimmy as, quote, A solitary thief. Not known to work with either firm, he should have had a good chance of remaining undetected altogether. Yet he was known to be one of the train robbers almost at once first by other criminals and then by the police, end quote. He continued on the run for three years until 1966 when one of his old friends turned him in. In April of 1966, this old friend saw Jimmy's wanted picture in a newspaper and called the police to tell them exactly where he was. He was arrested and sentenced to 18 years in prison. Buster Edwards and his family weren't on the run for very long. He was also arrested in 1966 when the money ran out and his family became homesick. Buster negotiated a return from Mexico to England, where he was arrested and sentenced to 15 years in prison. He served nine years and then was released early. It seems like Buster was a guy who wasn't afraid of being in the spotlight. He gave interviews to Pierce Paul Reed, who wrote the book The Train Robbers, and he did many interviews from what I understand. It sounds like Buster kind of jazzed things up here and there for his part in the story, including saying that he had been the one to hit Jack Mills 
And he alleged that a man named Otto Skernese, a German military official, had been the actual organizer of the robbery. Buster later retracted both of those statements because they were completely false, which is unfortunate for the author who already put those little tidbits in his book. Bruce, his wife Frances, and their son Nick became the Hiller family and bounced around quite a bit. After getting false passports, they spent some time in Mexico, and then eventually they went to Canada to be near Charlie Wilson, and then after that they went back to France, and then finally back to Bruce's hometown in Devon, England. Their son Nick remembers being on the run with his parents. He always knew that something was kind of strange about their lives, but he had this kind of idea that his dad was a good guy in hiding from the bad guys. I think Nick was about maybe two when they first went on the run. So when his dad was arrested, he was around six or seven years old. So he spent the first chunk of his life in hiding. It wasn't until the police showed up to take Bruce away in November of 1968 that he put it all together that his dad was the bad guy here. After his capture, Bruce was sentenced to 25 years in prison, but he served 10 years and then was released in 1978. One of the investigators in the documentary I watched pointed out how sad it was that these really clever, interesting and clearly smart men ended up in this life of crime and I have to agree with that. A lot of these guys were absolutely brilliant and could have done so much with their brains. After Bruce was released in 1978, he tried to find success working in the textile trade but eventually he turned to money laundering for some of the South London gangs and he served three more years in prison for dealing drugs in the 80s. Once he was released from prison, he had a really hard time finding employment, which is unsurprising, and he made some money by doing media interviews. He wrote his book, again, great book, and then he also worked on the movie Buster as a consultant. He died of natural causes on February 28, 2013, when he was 81 years old. As I mentioned before, Ronnie Biggs was released from prison in 2009 after he'd been on the run and evading police in Brazil. He wrote an autobiography called Odd Man Out, The Last Straw, and spent his last few years of his life in a care home. He died of natural causes on December 18, 2013. A British Guard of Hell's Angels members escorted Ronnie's hearse to the crematorium. Tommy Wisby had given his share of the robbery money to his brothers for safekeeping, so when he was released from prison, he was set up pretty well financially, at least for a while. Unfortunately, Tommy and another robber, Jim Husey, got back into the crime scene pretty quickly. In July of 1989, Jim and Tommy pled guilty to being part of a 500,000-pound cocaine trafficking ring. Tommy was sentenced to 10 years, and Jim was sentenced to 7. After his release, Tommy left crime behind, from what I can tell, and he lived to be 86 years old. He died after having a stroke in December of 2017. Jim Husey lived to be 79 years old, and hours before his death, he gave a very shocking deathbed confession. His health had been going downhill for a while, and he confessed that he had attacked the train driver, Jack Mills, during the robbery. However, there are many people, including some of Jack Mills's own family, who believe it was a false confession, that maybe he was trying to take the fall for someone else, trying to protect the surviving robbers. Jack's son, John, said, quote, My father told me who hit him, and he told me the circumstances. I'm not prepared to say who it was, but I know, end quote. Which makes me so confused. I... If you knew, why won't you say? And it makes me wonder if John didn't want to say who he was told it was because he was worried for his own safety or the safety of his family. Obviously, you don't want to go around pointing fingers at criminals, clearly. Um, but it's really confusing because a lot of people have been pointed at. But people seem to detract it every time. I don't know. But as far as I can tell since Jim's deathbed confession on December 12th, 2012, another theory has not been presented as to who actually did hit Jack Mills. 
And then to wrap up this portion of this story, Jack Mills was the train driver during the robbery. The gang had planned for the robbery to be nonviolent, but when they stormed into the train, someone ended up hitting Jack with an iron bar, which resulted in a terrible brain injury, a black eye, and facial bruising. At the time, no one owned up to it, and many of the robbers expressed deep regret for Jack's injuries, saying that they never meant for any of the workers to have serious injuries. Jack was 57 at the time of the robbery and not far from retirement. His family has expressed that after the attack, he never fully recovered. Jack returned to work in 1964, but he had to take months off due to illness, and eventually he retired in 1967. After that, he was diagnosed with leukemia, and he died in 1970 after complications caused by pneumonia. And obviously, while the attack during the train robbery couldn't have caused him to get leukemia, his family did say that he was never quite the same after the attack. Bruce's brother-in-law, John Daly, who was acquitted for his part in the robbery, left crime behind and became a street sweeper in Cornwall. The locals called him John the Gent, and he lived until age 60. He died just six weeks after Bruce did in 2013. And until his death, he never told anyone about his actual part in the robbery, fearing a retrial and prison time. Gordon Goody served his time and then moved to settle down in Spain. While he was in prison, he took full advantage of the newly introduced school options. He studied Spanish and then left life as a career criminal behind, instead opening a bar in Spain and staying out of the spotlight until the end of his life. In 2013, when he was 84, he opened up and shared his side of the story around the 50th anniversary. He told a reporter about how he was the one who introduced the gang to the insider who worked for the Royal Mail Company and finally released the name of the man, only referred to as the Ulster Man. According to Gordon, a man named Patrick McKenna, a 43-year-old postal worker, was the one who gave them the inside scoop on how to rob the train. However, Patrick McKenna's family was shocked and kind of embarrassed that he was pointed at in this crime. Patrick passed away in 1994, and by the time this confession came out, he was no longer alive to defend himself. Apparently, Gordon had a book coming out at this time. He was also part of this documentary where he quote-unquote revealed the Ulster man's identity. But apparently, he couldn't remember the man's name, and Patrick's family thinks he just pulled the name Patrick out of the air because Gordon remembered that the man had an Irish accent, and so he just picked the first Irish name that popped into his head, and then allegedly... The producers looked into anyone named Patrick who worked at the Royal Mail at that time. They showed Gordon a picture of Patrick McKenna, and Gordon was allegedly kind of shifty and uncertain, but eventually he went ahead and confirmed that, yes, that was the man. It was exactly like him. And then Patrick McKenna became named as the Ulster Man. Patrick McKenna's family was quick to defend him. His grandson, Mark, told a reporter for The Mirror that his grandfather was absolutely not a criminal. He was a hardworking postman who did his route in Manchester and would have had no clearance to access the information that he allegedly shared with Gordon. It was very upsetting for us all when my grandfather was linked to the great train robbery. He wasn't that kind of person. He had no criminal ties whatsoever. He was as honest as it gets, end quote. Mark said that he also tried to get in contact with Gordon, but he wouldn't speak with him which is not a great look. I personally don't believe that he was involved in this crime. He wasn't even living in the area to have had the information for the train robbery. And not only that, but he wasn't high enough up in the Royal Mail like system that he would have had information that was shared. It makes no sense. And it seems like a really unfortunate coincidence that he just said the name Patrick and then it was pushed along by a TV producer trying to get a good scoop, in my opinion. Okay, I'm gonna pause right there because while I was writing this script... It was the most, the weirdest coincidence. I finished that thing I was talking about with Patrick McKenna, and then I did a quick investigoogle to see who else had been named as the Ulster Man. And as I was writing this script, an article was posted on August 6th. Apparently, 
breaking the news that a new person has been named. So breaking news, friends, right this moment, as I was writing this episode, Scotland Yard said that Patrick McKenna was not the Ulster Man for the reasons that I listed and because they have a new person that is at the forefront named Gerald McMorrin, an Irish man who absolutely would have had access to the inside information because he worked as a senior position for security of the general post office. He would have known the exact timing of the train and how much money was on board. Gerald had also apparently worked with Gordon and Bruce's lawyers in the past, which meant that they could have met that way. There had never been enough evidence to question Gerald, and he passed away in 1999. However, there are some things that point in his direction. First of all, he worked in the security unit, dealing with preventing robberies from the mail vans and trains. So he knew what they were looking at security-wise. This information was only known by a few people to try to keep things like this from happening. And don't forget, they also had added new security measures to the high-value package car the year before the robbery, but the night of the robbery, that fancy new carriage was getting maintenance done and had been swapped for an old one with no security. That is something that only a higher-up working in security would know. Also, Gerald was the only person working in this senior security position that had an Irish accent. Gerald's family does not believe that he could have been involved in the heist. They maintain that he was a very honest man and he had no previous criminal records or links to these robbers. Honestly, who knows? I feel like this is another one of those loose ends that will never be tied up or never 100% confirmed because there's just too many stories. There's too many people involved. But either way, that was very exciting information to have come up as I was in the middle of writing this episode. So circling back to Gordon Goody that opened up our Ulsterman conversation, he has also said that Jimmy Husey's deathbed confession was false. He said Jack was hit on the head after he refused to drive the train, but he still wouldn't say who hit him. Gordon passed away January 29th, 2016. Roger Cordry and Jimmy White are a little hard to track down after the robbery. It seems like they served their time and then went on with quiet lives. I wasn't able to find death dates for either of them, but they have both passed away from what I understand. Bob Welch is the last train robber alive as of August 2023. He actually suffered a bad leg injury in prison that led to him having several operations. Complications from one of these operations left him unable to walk. As far as I can tell, he went on to live a quiet life after prison. He is currently 94 years old. Unfortunately, not all of the robbers got out of prison and lived long lives. A few of their lives ended in tragedy. Roy James, who was a race car driver, actually participated in a couple of Formula One junior races within days of committing the robbery. He was arrested a few weeks later and spent 11 years behind bars, and then he tried to get back into racing, but he broke his leg in a bad crash and his career ended. After that, Roy was arrested for a gold smuggling scheme he tried to pull off with Charlie Wilson. He was eventually acquitted of that crime and then married a woman 30 years younger than him. They had two children together, but then went through a really nasty custody battle. During an argument with his father-in-law, Roy shot him three times. His father-in-law lived, but was obviously greatly injured. Roy served six years for the attempted murder. During his prison time, he had heart failure that led to a triple bypass surgery, and then he later died from heart failure in August of 1997 when he was 62 years old. Buster Edwards also met a really sad end. The other robbers always talked about how much they liked Buster, and there was that movie made about him that starred Phil Collins. After his prison sentence, Buster ran a flower stall outside Waterloo Station in London. He did interviews about the robbery and actually made an appearance in the movie Buster. Buster died in November of 1994, apparently by suicide. And quick trigger warning, I'm not going to be graphic, um, but it is pretty upsetting, so skip ahead a few seconds if you would like. His brother found him hanging in a lockup garage, and an inquest followed his death because his brother had said that Buster had been very intoxicated that night, 
much too intoxicated to have had the wherewithal to do this to himself. However, at the time of his death, police were looking into him as a suspect of a huge fraud case, and it's speculated that he didn't want to go back to prison, which led him to taking his own life. Either way, it's a very sad end for someone who seemed to be so loved. As I mentioned before, Charlie Wilson was suspected of running a gold smuggling scheme with Roy James. Eventually, he moved to Spain, where he was suspected of drug smuggling and money laundering. Charlie was murdered by a hitman in April of 1990, and from what I understand, this was because of a big conflict within the drug-running world that he had found himself in. What a wild ride with so many details and ins and outs. I hope you were able to follow all of it because I know there was a lot going on. Um, this case has been so interesting to research, and I can see why this has lived on for so long and stayed popular for 60 years especially with that Ulsterman update while I was researching. Seriously, such good timing. I think part of what keeps the story living is the fact that there are still some questions that people are still looking into and some questions that will probably never have answers. There are dozens of books, hundreds of articles, and a handful of documentaries and dramatizations about the great train robbery, but to leave it on a quote from Bruce Reynolds, some secrets will never be revealed and the full definitive history of the great train robbery will never be written, end quote. I think that is the perfect way to sum it up. I feel like we're going to continue talking about it for another 60 years because it is fascinating. I would love to hear your thoughts about this case. If you have family members that are somehow connected, if you have any personal stories, I would love to hear them. And I hope that you enjoyed these two episodes about the great train robbery. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcasts. And I will talk to you very soon. Bye.